Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
This morning, we are going to start reading in Revelation 7. We have just read about the six seals, and those six seals are kind of a synopsis, kind of an outline of Daniel's 70th week and the things that are going to occur during Daniel's 70th week, starting out with a false peacemaker coming to the planet and then war breaking out, and right behind the war seeing famine, pestilence, death, the martyrs who die at the hand of of the evil men of this world, and then God pours out his wrath on this world. And so that is a big sweeping overview of the seven years that Daniel speaks of. In order to read chapter 7, though, which is an interlude, you're going to see this three different times in the book of Revelation, where you're going to see the six seals, and then there's a moment where John's attention is drawn to something else, and then comes the seventh seal. It's going to be the same in the trumpets. It's going to be the same in the bowls or the vials, depending on your translation. It's going to be the same. They tick down one through six, and then there's a moment of break in the action where John's attention is drawn to something else, and then you get to the final of the seals or the trumpets or the bowls. And so chapter seven is that break after six seals. But this is also one of the most controversial moments in the whole of the book of Revelation. And Revelation itself is very controversial. But by the time you get to the 144,000, oh my goodness, people just go crazy with their interpretations. And so we really have to spend some time this morning settling one more time what our basic approach is, what our basic hermeneutic is, the way that I approach the whole of the Bible, including the book of Revelation, is that I start by paying attention to what it says. Is that too obvious? You start with what it actually says and then bring your thinking about it, any interpreting that you do, Any commentary that you do has to be based in what it says. And we have all heard people who say what this means is, and then what they explain it to be ends up being nothing like what the text says. Here, I'll give you an example. This very week, I heard a fellow, because I listen all the time, I listen constantly to preachers. I I study preachers and preaching and have for many years. And so I heard a fellow this week in defending his own eschatological position say that the numbers in the Bible, particularly the numbers in the book of Revelation, are spiritual and not to be understood literally. And then he said, and that's true from the very beginning of the book of Revelation. All the numbers in the book are meant to be taken spiritually, not literally. So I want to take a few moments and look at some of the numbers in the book of Revelation. And indeed, 
in the Old Testament, and let's see if we can settle the issue of whether or not we're supposed to read the numbers in the book of Revelation in a genuine, literal, mathematic fashion. Because if the numbers, just like the words in the Bible, if they don't mean what they say, then they could potentially mean anything. We have no idea what they actually mean. Because what God meant to say is not what he said. Apparently, he had some other meaning in mind, but he used these words. And then you've got to find somebody who has the biblical acumen and the appropriate decoder ring to figure out what God is actually saying when he says stuff. I think the safest approach is to pay attention to what he says and then align our thinking with what is actually said. Does that make sense? Sure. For instance, I mentioned a moment ago the book of Daniel. Well, let me add, the reason that people so frequently will allegorize and reinterpret the book of Revelation is that they will make the argument that the book of Revelation is apocalyptic. I mentioned this in my introduction to the book of Revelation. They will argue that Revelation is apocalyptic, and therefore you read it and interpret it differently than the whole rest of the Bible. That is, by the way, a very circular argument because the book of Revelation is called the Apocalypse. The original Greek title of the book is the Apocalypsis, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So the argument is that the Apocalypse is apocalyptic. And therefore, since the Apocalypse is apocalyptic, you read it differently than you read the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible, you pay attention to exactly what it says. But then when you get to apocalyptic literature, not so much. Okay, well, the Old Testament book that they identify as apocalyptic is the book of Daniel. In Daniel 9, there's a really important piece of math, which we have talked about several times. But I want to return to it this morning just to point out how mathematic it is. An angel, Gabriel, speaks to Daniel After Daniel has prayed that God would keep his word and that Israel would only be in Babylon for 70 years, an angel shows up and says, 70 times 7 are now decreed for your people. But then the angel splits up the 70 weeks of years, the 77s, and he splits it up into first seven sevens or seven weeks, and then 62 weeks. So how many is that? 69. Yeah, you're a little slow on the uptake there. 69. That's math. Anybody being homeschooled understands that's math. That's how that works. And then Daniel says that there is going to be a covenant made with Israel for one more week. There's your extra seven. That comes to a total of 70. That's math. In other words, the Bible knows how numbers work. And more importantly, God knows how numbers work. And God does not use numbers arbitrarily. Nor does he use specific numbers and then leave it up to human imagination to allegorize and decide what those numbers ought to mean. 
but the people who defend the notion that apocalyptic literature needs to be understood differently will look at the numbers and say, well, it doesn't mean that. And we're going to bump into that this morning in Revelation 7. In fact, when these people come up against the actual numbers that the Bible declares in chapter 7, I have read so many commentaries where the commentator just goes apoplectic over what it actually says and then goes to work to try to make it different. I guess that would make them apocalyptic, apoplectic. That's more difficult to say than I thought it was going to be. But they do. They just run crazy when they get in front of the 144,000. So in the book of Revelation, what's the first number that we find at the very beginning of the book? Well, it shows up in verse 4. You're only four verses in before you find the first number in the book of Revelation. John to the seven churches of Asia. How many churches is that? Seven. Very good. Well done. Tom on the front row came up with the correct answer, gets a star on his forehead. It's actually seven. And he was public schooled, I will point out. <laughs> now, just so you don't think that that seven means anything other than a numeric mathematical number, Jesus then goes through the trouble of enumerating them. So let's count along, shall we? Because starting in verse 10, John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write in a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. How many is that? Seven. So what does the word seven mean? It means exactly mathematically, numerically, seven in Revelation 1.22. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man. There's two numbers in that verse. One versus seven. Those are actual mathematic, literal numbers. And then... I saw one like the Son of Man, and as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, they are the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So earlier we saw that Jesus enumerated the seven churches, and now he has seven representations of the seven angels to those churches and the seven churches themselves each time he refers to them as seven. How many does he mean? Seven. Seven. He means seven. Is that difficult in any way? Nope. Okay, that's the first chapter of the book of Revelation. Can we say that numbers in the book of Revelation from the very beginning are meant to be spiritualized and not understood literally? No. No, we can't say that because if you just read it for what it says, it defines itself. And this happens very frequently in the Bible where you're given definitions for the numbers that are laid out in front of you. And yet people will argue that because it's apocalyptic, you can't trust or understand the numbers. In chapter 4, verse 2 of the book of Revelation, 
Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one, that's a mathematical number, was sitting on the throne. How many were on the throne? There was one on the throne. And around the throne were 24 thrones. Now, it doesn't matter what translation you're reading, that number will be 24. It's always 24, because in the Greek it's 24. There's no question about that number. So how many thrones were there? 24. There were 24. Now, people may try to divide that and say, well, you know, there were 12 apostles and there were 12 tribes of Israel, and so that's what makes up the 24. And so they may spiritualize the meaning of the elders, but there's no question about how many there were. There are actually mathematically 24 of them. But then, in verse 5, there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. When we read that, we went back and looked at Isaiah where those seven spirits of God are enumerated. And how many were there? Seven. There were actually seven of them because the Bible speaks in numbers in order to communicate exactly what God is saying. These numbers are not jump balls. These numbers are not up to you to interpret. When you see the number seven, you should not think he means five. He means 18. He's saying seven because he means seven. He said 24 because John saw 24. And remember what I said last week when it comes to the book of Revelation, the subject matter expert on what John saw is John. Nobody knows more about what John saw than John did. So when he says, I saw 24 thrones, he saw 24 thrones. That's a number. That's math. And then on top of that, Verse 5 says, there were seven lampstands of burning fire. Verse 6 says, before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center of the throne, four living creatures full of eyes front and behind. And then he enumerates them for us so that we're not confused about what the number four actually means because he says the first creature was like a lion, that's one, second like a calf, that's two, third like the face of a man, that's three, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. So now that he has enumerated it for you, how many were there? Four. There were four. How obvious is this? Any second grader can understand this. Chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand, this is verse 1 of chapter 5 of Revelation, then I saw in the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back which was sealed with seven seals. And then as we see through the rest of chapter 6, Jesus peels off those seals one by one and they are enumerated for us. For instance, Verse 3 says, and when he had opened the second seal. Verse 5 says, when he had opened the third seal. And on and on, he had opened six seals. And then after this moment, there's going to be a seventh seal. So since he takes the time to enumerate it, how many seals can we confidently say actually exist? Seven. Seven. How many did John see? Seven. Seven. How many did he write down about? Seven. Seven. Do you get the idea? From the very beginning of the book of Revelation, very, very specific, mathematic, literal numbers are laid out. There's no room for allegory here. There's no room for interpretation here. Eventually, we will get to chapter 8, verse 1, 
where he opens the seventh seal. So there's no question about that. So the very beginning of chapter 7, very first verse. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. The number four is mentioned three times in that verse. How many is John referring to? Four. Four. Yeah, Paige is giving me this in the back. See, I'm up here. I can see you. Yeah, four. It's so very obvious. Here, I'll make it even more obvious for you. North, south, east, west. How many is that? Four. That's what he's referring to, the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth, the north, the south, the east, the west. So anybody who knows basic geography would agree that there's north, south, east, and west. Anybody who understands the basic English or even Greek language would understand that each of the three times that John refers to four, he means actual mathematic number four. Am I being too pedantic yet? I'm just trying to prove my point because we're about to get to 144,000. And before we get there, I want you to understand that every number up until that moment is actual, literal, mathematic numbers. And there is no reason to think that when he says 144,000, he means anything except 144,000. And by the way, I'm going to prove to you in the Bible that the Bible defines thousand for you. So you don't even have to define it for yourself. You don't have to allegorize it. You don't have to say, well, it's just a non-distinct, broad number. No, it's a specific thousand. That's the way the number is always used in the Bible. In Revelation 11, when we get there, you're going to read, leave out the court which is outside the sanctuary. Do not measure it, because there's measuring going on, for it's given to the Gentiles. And they're going to trample the holy city for... Watch the math. For 42 months, and I will give authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. On the Jewish lunar calendar, every month had 30 days. So how many days are in 42 months? 1,260. 1,260. He didn't do the math. He read it. But you can break out your calculator and find out he's exactly right. 1,260 days just happens to be 42 months on a lunar calendar. In other words, before 144,000, all of the numbers are very literal. After 144,000, in chapter 11, the numbers are very literal, mathematic, very specific. So there is no basis on which you are allowed to allegorize the 144,000 because they're going to be mentioned mathematically and then they are going to be enumerated for us. Do you see where I'm going here? You getting a feel for this? Revelation 12, 14 says, the two wings of a great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. That's three and a half. One and two and half. Three and a half years. How many months is that? 42. 42. How many days is that? 1,260. 1, exactly like the book of Revelation says. 
So it's continuing to be mathematic and precise. And so I have a great deal of controversy with the people who say, you have to spiritualize the book of Revelation, and especially the numbers. You can't trust the numbers in the book of Revelation. And yet, all the examples we have looked at so far this morning are specific and mathematic and literal. Can anybody in this room argue with me that everything we've looked at this morning is anything other than mathematic and literal? Nope. Nope. So what does that do for your interpretive scheme? It should show you that the book of Revelation is John laying out exactly what he saw and mathematically, numerically, exactly what he heard because he was told, write down what you see and hear. Okay, so let's take a look at Revelation 7 now. That was technically all introduction and does not count against my time. So that's good. Chapter 7. After this, the after this is a reference to the first six seals. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that the wind should not blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. This is a continuation of the wrath of God being poured out not only on the people of the planet, but on the planet itself. In fact, in verse 3, you can see what the purpose is for the holding back of the four winds so that everything is completely still. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. So that would be the reason for holding back the winds for the purpose of harming the earth and the sea and the trees. So four angels are on the four compass points of the earth holding back the wind so that it will not blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Verse 2, And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God in their foreheads. You see this a lot throughout the Bible, where when God is pouring out his wrath, first he protects his people. We don't know what this seal is. People will argue about it and say, well, it's a spiritual seal. It's not a literal seal. It's not something that you could physically see in their forehead. And yet later in the book of Revelation, we're going to see that Daniel's little horn, the beast, that he is going to make everybody take a mark in their right hand or their forehead. And apparently that is a physical, obvious, sealable mark. Because without it, you can't buy, sell, or trade. So it seems to be more than just a spiritual mark. And so since the whole deceived planet is going to be subject to the mark of the beast, this seal, this mark, is the mark of God. And it's spoken of that way. It is the seal of the living God. 
who was going to preserve his particular people during this period of wrath coming on the whole planet. What's interesting is that you don't see any mention of sealing Christians here. The 144,000 are all Israelites. They are enumerated as Israelites. That is an indication that the church is not here if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture or even a pre-wrath rapture. You believe that once the wrath of God comes, that the church just can't be here because, after all, Christ himself bore the wrath of God on the cross And God is not fond of double jeopardy. He's not going to extract the price from his son and then extract the price again from the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. And you see that all the way through the Bible. You see many types and shadows of it, whether it's God delivering Noah while he floods the whole rest of the earth or whether it's Lot and his wife and kids being taken out of Sodom and Gomorrah before he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a very consistent pattern that the wrath of God and the harm to the physical earth is about to be poured out by the angels who are assigned to do that, and yet another angel says, don't do that until I've had the time to seal those who belong to God and seal them with the seal of the living God, and then you can harm the earth and the sea and the trees after we have marked his bondservants. So that is John's introduction to what we're about to read. Verse 4. I heard the number of those who were sealed. Did John count them? No. He heard the number. So who said it? Obviously an angelic being, a representative of God himself, said the number. John just wrote it down. John's just acting as a stenographer here. He writes down the number that he heard. So imagine the audacity, the unmitigated gall of human beings who can argue with what John heard and wrote down. (laughs) Say, well, it doesn't mean 144,000. I mean, yeah, that's what it says, but it doesn't mean that. Now, by the way, there's a whole lot of math here. Actual, literal, genuine math. Because we're about to hear that there are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. How much is 12 times 12? Go with your fingers again, Paige. I dare you. Go ahead. No. (laughs) It's 144. 12 times 12 is 144. That's math. That's inarguable logic. So since this is being enumerated for us, since it's being laid out for us, and that some heavenly voice has told John 144,000. So John writes down 144,000. And then he's told that it is 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. And after that mathematic specificity, there are people who will say, oh, that is a reference to the church. In what way? And by the way, this is a good example of what I was talking about earlier, where people will interpret completely differently than what it says. Because what it says is 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, that's the church. 
It doesn't say it's the church. And in fact, just earlier in the book of Revelation, John proved he knew how to say church because he wrote letters to the seven churches. And had he meant church at this point, what would he have said? Church. Church. That's what he would have said. But he didn't say that. He said 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Why? Because he means, watch this interpretation now, he means 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what he said, because that's what he means. Is that too obvious? And yet, I know, you've got to duct tape your head closed to just contain all that information. Has anybody else here, I know I sound like I'm kind of ranting and raving a bit here, and perhaps I am, but has anybody else here ever come across the interpretation of the 144,000 as the church? That's a lot of heads nodding. The people on the internet can't hear your heads rattling from up here, but... Where, I ask again, where do they get the authority and the unmitigated audacity to say that this is a reference to the church? That's authority they just don't have. Because get this right, I, you, Shane, Steve, Micah, all of us, Jeff, collectively, the whole church world, all of humanity, don't have the power or the authority to change the word of God. You're not that big. You're not that important. And yet when it comes to the book of Revelation, jump ball because it's, it's apocalyptic, so we can just allegorize it. Okay, so listen to the specificity here. I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Jacob. Who were the people who were being sealed? Israelites. Says it right here. Sons of Israel. Verse 5. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. And from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. And from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. And from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. How many tribes did he just name by name? Twelve. Twelve. That is mathematic specificity. Let me put it this way. If what God meant to say was that he was planning to seal 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. If that's what he meant to say, what words would he use? Oh, that's right, the words we find right here. Because that's what he means to say. Now, whatever that does to your overall theology and eschatology, whatever that does to your overriding hermeneutic principle, I don't care and neither does God. The fact is, this is what the word of God says, so we have to bring ourselves in line with it and just agree with God and say, this is what God said, therefore this is what he means to say. There will be 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel at this point 
before the angel is allowed to stop the wind and hurt the earth. Now, the reasons that people will say, well, this isn't a reference to the actual 12 tribes of the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel, is that nowhere in the Old Testament are the tribes listed in this particular order. Usually, they're listed from the oldest down to the youngest. Here, they're in a completely different order. So that's enough for people to say, that means it needs to be interpreted some other way. Also, by the way, for those of you that were really paying close attention, you'll notice that the tribe of Dan is not mentioned anywhere in here. Now, people argue about, why not the tribe of Dan? The most common argument is, well, it was because the tribe of Dan was responsible for bringing idol worship originally into the northern kingdom of Israel. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't give us a reason for it. I will tell you the reason why Dan is not listed here. You ready? You got your duct tape out, ready to close your head? I'm going to tell you exactly why the tribe of Dan is not listed in Revelation 7. Because God didn't mention them. That's why. And that's it. And that's, that's as much as we have to know. Because we're not big enough to say, no, no, see, God got it wrong. The truth is, they're not listed in the ceiling of the 144,000. By the way, you'll also see reference to the tribe of Joseph here. The tribe of Joseph is also mentioned several times in the Old Testament in the listing of the 12 tribes. That's just the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim and Manasseh each got a portion in Israel which would have made 13 tribes altogether, but the Levites weren't counted. And here, the Levites are counted. When it came to land parceling, the Levites weren't counted. But here, in order to make room for both Ephraim and Manasseh, Ephraim under the nickname of Joseph, Dan's not mentioned. And that's as much as we can say about that. So even though... People may debate, people may argue about why this order of tribes is laid out. Even though they may argue about why Dan is not listed here, what you cannot argue about is how much 12 times 12 equals. It's 144. And if it's 12 times 12,000, mathematically, it's 144,000. Now, I promised you earlier that I was going to show you where the Bible itself defines a thousand for us, because there's a lot of arguing out there about what a thousand means, especially in the book of Revelation. By the time you get to chapter 20 and the thousand years, oh my goodness, the amount of arguing out there, because people simply do not want to take the number thousand literally. But if we allow the Bible to interpret the Bible, which is what we're supposed to do, then the Bible interprets a thousand for us with tremendous mathematic specificity. Go over to the book of Numbers. Is that a clue? <laughs> In the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. By this time in the book of Numbers, there's a census that's going on, and there's a tremendous amount of counting going on. 
And what I'm going to demonstrate to you here is that even in the time of Moses, math was still true. Math was still accurate, and one plus one still equaled two, despite the new math that's around these days. Where really, it's, it's up to how you feel. If you feel like two plus two is five, then that's fine. That's, I agree with Shane. He was shaking his head. Because we live in a stupid world now. Amen. Numbers 31. Let me get back there with you. Talk amongst yourselves. I'll be right with you. Starting really in chapter 26, the Lord spoke to Moses and Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel from 20 years old and upward by their father's households, whoever is able to go out to war for Israel. And in that chapter, you're going to see numbers like, verse 18, 40,500, or verse 22, 76,500, or verse 25, 64,300. And sometimes it's even more specific, like in verse 51, where the sons of Israel are 601,730. How specific is that? It's not a big generalized number. It's exactly 601,730. All I'm trying to demonstrate to you is that the Israelites knew how to count, and they knew how to count specifically, mathematically. Okay, so now in chapter 31... I'm going to start reading at verse 28. Well, I'll read from verse 25. Genesis 1.1. We're going to be here a while. <laughs> the Lord spoke to Moses saying, You and Eliezer the priest are the heads of the fathers of the households of the congregation. So take account of the booty that was captured. They had just gone to war. And they had just won over a tremendous amount of stuff in the war. So go out and count it, both man and animal, and divide the booty between the warriors who went out to battle and all the congregation. So that means however many there are, divide it in half. Half is going to go to the congregation of Israel, and half is going to go specifically to the men of war who went out and fought. Verse 28, And levy a tax for the Lord from the men of war who went out to battle, one in five hundred of the persons and of the cattle and of the donkeys and of the sheep, take it from their half and give it to Eleazar the priest for an offering to the Lord. And from the sons of Israel's half... You will take one drawn out of every 50 of the persons and of the cattle and of the donkeys and of the sheep and from all the animals. And you will give that to the Levites who keep charge of the tabernacle of the Lord. And Moses and Eliezer the priests did just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And now the booty that remained from the spoil which the men of war had plundered was 675,000 sheep and 72,000 cattle, and 61,000 donkeys, and of the human beings, of the women who had not known a man intimately, all the persons were 32,000. And half the portion of those who went out to war was as follows. 
the number of sheep. Follow me here. How many sheep were there originally? 675,000. What is half of 675,000? 337,500. How is 1,000 defined there? 500 times 2. Divide 1,000, you get 500. That's the definition of 1,000 in the Bible. There's no ambiguity about it. 1,000 is 500 times 2. And it says it over and over again. But now look at the specificity. Once you get down to 337,500, the Lord's levy of the sheep, which a moment ago was determined to be, that from their half, the levy of the Lord for the men of war who went out to battle was one in every 500. So now we're going to divide 337,500 by that 500, and the answer is 675. Get out your calculator. The Bible's correct. In the book of Numbers during the time of Moses. They understood math. They understand numbers. And there's zero ambiguity about what those numbers are. Of the cattle, half was 36,000, and the Lord's levy was 72,000. Not 72,000, 72. 72. I'm so sorry. You're exactly correct. The cattle was 36,000, from which the Lord's levy was 72. And of the donkeys, 30,500, from which the Lord's levy is 61. And the human beings were 16,000, from which the Lord's levy is 32. So not only is 1,500 times 2, they accurately divided by 500 and came up with the accurate mathematical answers that we agree with to this very day. You get my point? Mm -hmm. So now, back to Revelation 7. Let's see if knowing all that, let's see if we can understand this 144,000. The 144 part is 12 times 12, says so in the text. And everybody agrees, that's how many it is. 12 times 12, 144. That's math, no question. 144,000. What does thousand mean? 500 times 2. There's zero wiggle room in what is written here. And then 144,000 Israelites, sons of Jacob, who are then enumerated by tribes. So again, not vague. Very, very specific language. And as a result of laying out with mathematics specificity exactly who these people are and with national and tribal specificity, I just don't understand how anybody can think that they have the authority to say this means anything else than 144,000 Israelites from the 12 tribes of Israel because that is what it says. Okay, so now let's talk about the Greek word thousand. Kilioi is the Greek word. There are different variations on it, kiliad, really depending on whether it's being used as a noun or as an adjective. In the first roughly 300 years of the church, the dominant eschatological view was that Christ was going to come back for his church before the thousand years began. 
that was known as chiliasm, using that word thousand right in it. The word kilioi is used 11 times in the New Testament. Twice it's used in 2 Peter 3.8, and the rest of the uses are all here in the book of Revelation. But there's no question what the Greek word kiliad means. In fact, to this very day, in most scientific communities, a group of a thousand is called what? A kiliad. Because that word has just moved into the English language. And you know what it means? A thousand. If you're working in a lab, let's say, if you're really following the recipe that is laid out for you in a lab, and you're told, you're instructed, that you need to include a kiliad of something, can you decide for yourself that what that means is just a large, undefinable number? No, it has scientific specificity to it. It always has had. It still does. The word kiliad, kilioi, it means a thousand. And there's no debate among Greek speakers what that word means. Kilioi is used 43 times in the New Testament with various different prefixes, but always, every time, as a mathematical count, like on the day of Pentecost. How many people are mentioned? 3,000. And that would be triskilioi in the Greek. And you know what triskilioi means? 3,000. It means exactly what it says. It has mathematic specificity. Or when Jesus fed with fishes and loaves, how many people did he feed? 5,000. Pentakiskilioi. Pentakiskilioi is 5,000. And interestingly, both the 3,000 at Pentecost and the 5,000 that Jesus fed, plus women and children, in both of those instances, in order that we don't think that it is absolutely mathematic, exactly 5,000, exactly 3,000, in both of those texts, you'll see the word about. It's about 3,000. It's about 5,000. Meaning that the New Testament authors know how to say not exactly. But that's not what John said here in Revelation. He said specifically, 144,000. Am I beating this to death yet? But are you getting my point? Next time you hear somebody say to you that the 144,000 represents the church, I hope you'll say, based on what? Where's your proof? Where's your evidence? Where is your textual evidence that says what you're saying? Because what you're saying is opposite of what the Bible says. So I'm going to go with what the Bible says and tell you that you, you just don't have the authority to change what it says. Chapter 7, verse 1. Let's put this all together now. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having a seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, 
do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. And from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. After these things, notice how John keeps writing sequentially. I saw this, and then this, and then this. After these things, I looked. And behold, a great multitude. Now, this should seal the notion that the 144,000 are Israelites. Because now... John is going to describe a great multitude which no man could count, so that would be different than 144 actual mathematic people. After these things I looked, and behold, there was a great multitude which no one can count. Proving, by the way, that John knows how to say great big number that nobody can count. He knows how to say that because he said it right here. This great multitude that no one can count from every nation and all tribes and all peoples and all tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cried out with a loud voice saying, the balance of this chapter is a demonstration of the worship of God in heaven. The book of Revelation began with a description of worship of God in heaven, except the ones who were doing the worship were the angelic host and the elders on their 24 thrones and the living creatures before the throne of God. Now that worship is joined by this innumerable throng of people from all nations and kindreds and tongues. So they stand in stark contrast to the 144,000 Israelites. Because throughout the Bible, there is always a distinction made, Old and New Testament, between the people of God from the Old Testament, the Israelites, the people that God chose, those that he referred to as his elect. Yes, the church is also elect, but long before the church was elect, Israel was elect. And referred to as his people. And that's why Paul would ask questions like in Romans 11, has God forsaken those people whom he foreknew? God forbid. It's a very consistent pattern going on here. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. That's after Jesus died and resurrected. Paul was still seeing distinction between the Jew first, and then also the Gentiles who are grafted in. Jesus himself said to his apostles, when I sit on my glorious throne, you will sit on 12 thrones judging 
the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, if you take what Jesus said at face value, which I advise you do, then what he just said is, someday when I'm on my glorious throne, which I believe is a reference to the throne of the kingdom, the Davidic throne, the, the fulfillment of the covenant made with David, that someday his son was going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem, ruling over the whole earth, Jesus said, when I'm sitting on my glorious throne, you 12 are going to sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That means the 12 tribes of Israel have to exist and be findable and be judged over. So this pattern is very, very consistent. And you find that same pattern in Revelation. It's not new. It's not unique to John. It's not something that he just dreamed up or is special to this moment in time. First, God numbered the 144,000 that he was going to preserve because there has to be a preservation of Israel through all this time of trouble, through the tribulation, through the wrath. So he preserves them because it's all up to God no matter what, because he's sovereign. So he decides who it is that's going to carry the 12 tribes into the kingdom to come. And then the 12 apostles are going to sit on 12 thrones judging those 12 tribes. That's what the Bible says. Did I say anything just now that the Bible doesn't say? None of it. So then what should be our attitude toward that? There are going to be people listening to me on the internet who are going to go, well, that rubs up against my eschatology. and That doesn't fit my particular hermeneutical scheme. The answer is trash your scheme, trash your eschatology, and bring yourself into conformity with what the Bible says. How obvious is that? So I'm just going to read the balance of this chapter, and next week we will pick up at verse 10. But here's the worship that's going on in heaven with this great innumerable multitude. This is what they say. This is what John heard. This is what John wrote down. Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in their white robes, who are they? And from where have they come? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of great tribulation, and they have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them, and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat for the lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to springs of water of life. 
and God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. Don't you want to be in that group? Yes. No more pain, no more sickness. Being among the throng in the temple of God, worshiping God eternally. No more fear. No more crying, no more death. No more physical pain. And even when you would think of something that you might cry, or God himself is just going to wipe away all the tears. No more crying. Because there's nothing but everlasting joy in his presence. You want to be part of that. Now, by the way, the 144,000 are going to show up again in a couple chapters. And then on planet Earth, we're going to get down to two final witnesses. And then when they die, the whole earth is going to celebrate and give each other presents and say, those guys who afflicted us are gone. And then God's going to pour out the wrath of God, the anger of God. You don't want to be here for that. Your two options are wrath of God where you're running and hiding in the caves and the dens of the earth and saying, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the lamb. That's one option. Or be with God forever where he wipes away your tears and you live in constant eternal joy. And the differentiating factor between those two is Jesus Christ. So I say again what I said last week. Run to Christ. Barney Johnson years ago was here at GCA preaching and he made this statement. If you can run to Christ, run to Christ! there are a whole lot of people described in this book who can't. And you're among the very, very fortunate people who can. So do it and keep doing it and keep doing it until the day he takes you home. And whatever it costs you, whatever difficulties, whatever pain in this life, if you're with him eternally where there's no more fear or death or sickness or tears, I guarantee you, worth it. All right, well, I'm going to get out of the way, and Steve is going to come lead you. And we're going to sing How Great Thou Art. Seems like an appropriate song to finish with.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.